Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it's May Day. Happy May Day. Today on the program we'll have Al Nakba, which is coming up very soon. But we'll be looking at Al Nakba from a slightly different point of view. It just didn't happen on the 15th of May, 1948. It had been going on for a very long time. Gene Ethics Monthly Report with Bob Phelps. Look at uh, what's going to happen and what's likely to happen in the elections in Malaysia and Timor-Leste in a couple of weeks, 10 days. A report back from a conference in the Philippines focusing on the push for golden rice. I was speaking with Fran Morell from Madge. And I'm sure Mr Kevin Healy's going to tell you all about May Day. A week, Jane, listener, when we all enjoyed watching, listening and reading today's media, page after page up front in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for instance, of May Day news, of the history of the great working class struggles, where to go to celebrate, photos of union leaders and workers, little kids in their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, work clothes, proudly displaying union and May Day badges, celebrating their heroic actions against greed and exploitation. Arguments we know are sadly misplaced because we at the week that was know unions are evil. Evil, evil, evil. So evil the government was forced to call a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the evil as its first item of business. Yet the evil goes on. Just last week, unions attacked a small business which owed a worker the equivalent of 93 weeks' pay, an obvious oversight over several years. No caring employer would deliberately rip off a worker. Yet the ACTU Secretary, Sally McManus... Let us point out here, caring employers are so socially aware and concerned, they recognise there is no difference between caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers. And there would be no conflict if only evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers realised that, shared the same social responsibility. Yet this Sally McManus carries on as if caring employers and their workers have different interests, the politics of envy, of class wealth, warfare, class struggle, something we all know is a relic of the past. Why, former socialist big supremo nuclear hawk himself made that clear years ago. A working class hero loved by caring employers. That's the sort of society we want. Yet Sally McManus has called for industrial relations to be made more favourable to workers, claiming it is loaded toward employers when employers constantly tell us we need to remove the bias to evil unions by returning industrial relations to the sensible centre, showing caring employers are sensible. And that hero of reform, Chris Lye again of Pat Prick Stevedores, was forced to bemoan that since he did his bit for productivity on the wards, thanks to a few balaclavas and dogs and train killers, governments have been afraid to tackle industrial relations, thus handing all that power we know evil unions and workers enjoy. Even worse, 
they give them our hard-earned public money. As the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, Evan Mulhill on the land was forced to scream, Outrageous! As the Melbourne City Council voted $300,000 toward the renovation of Trades Hall, that monument to class warfare. Public funds are meant for really important and meaningful projects like the Tennis Centre, where I spend many a pleasant summer day with friends, for footy grounds and related facilities for the impoverished AFL, upgrading corporate hospitality areas, for instance, not for divisive sectional interests like evil workers and disruptive unions. So shame on the media for its shameless mass coverage, mass celebration of so divisive a day. We never see them celebrating caring employers, caring business class day, do we? And speaking of the government barely being able to wait to establish that Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into evil unions, its latest couldn't wait, no procrastination commission, when we look at the talents like former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle and Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Constable Peter Duffer, and this week, the Minister for something to do with smashing our union super funds, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? The mind boggles at what those who don't make it onto the front bench must be like. No, no, only joking. They're brilliant people there just to make life a little easier for all of us. And Kerry must get full marks for her honesty, not just for taking full credit for the Her Most Gracious Majesty's banking commission she was so dragged screaming and yelling to that she's still covered in bandages and bruises and cuts, but for declaring on the establishment of the commission, the government's record speaks for itself. Absolutely true. It does. And full marks for honesty, Kelly. And she continued her burst of honesty, declaring we could not have a morality tax, so banks and other rip-off merchants were excluded from the oh-so-critical tax cuts for the filthy rich. I mean, let's get a little bit real here. She exuded wisdom. Two points arising, of course, proving Kelly's point. There is absolutely no relationship between corporate taxes and morality. Well, corporate non-taxes, and if rip-off merchants were excluded from a corporate filthy rich tax cut, none of them would get one. Well, three things really for the a little bit of the a little bit real comment was also spot on. So well done, Kelly. Down at the commission, or up at, I think, AMP on the customers, executives admitted this week people could be hurt by revelations of ripping off big time. Uh, the customers you pee on, we assume. Don't be silly, us. We are deeply concerned. They certainly looked deeply concerned. Shareholders are threatening to deny us millions of dollars in bonuses. It's daylight robbery. Not sure whether daylight robbery meant denying the millions or them getting the millions, but their corporate lawyer, given the flick yesterday, along with the chairwoman, Brian Salter away their money, said he did no wrong. I just changed a few things. And this bloke who owns a mob called Dover Financial, Terry McMaster, just before he collapsed and was carried away, showing the unnecessary stress all this is putting these poor, 
well, not so poor people through. It's so unfair. Just before admitted its client protection policy protected Dover Financial and not the clients. An Orwellian document counsel assisting put. I agree with that, Terry said, but of course this has been changed. Ah yes, when did you change it? We thrust a mic at poor Terry being carried away on the stretcher. Yesterday, of course. And saw this worse-packed bank ad telling us how Trubler was his love to help each other, none more so than the worse-packed bank itself. So you love helping? Certainly, love, love, love. We love helping ourselves to your money. Ripping off, you can bank on it. And the Trubler Wazzy Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Westercutt Wages was bitterly upset at the leak of a, quote, secret tax document showing the big corporates watered down the document designed to show the big corporates' sincerity in using tax cuts for the filthy rich to make life that little bit better for all of us by actually offering to pay tax. That last bit was the bit they had trouble with. And Jennifer's distress that they wouldn't commit to paying tax, you say? No, no, no. There's now a witch hunt to find out how the bloody thing was leaked. And on the great corporates, headline in the Troubler Wazzy Catalyst Review reminded me former New South Wales big supremo Christ in her Keneally had been bumped into the Senate. Keneally leads Labour Assault on Business. It informed us, and I'm sure your thoughts are the same as mine, listener. Won't that have business shaking in its boots? On which, good news, real good news. A study by the House of Commons Library in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country calculates that by 2030, the 1% of super, fil- super, super filthy rich in the world will own 64% of the world's wealth which is real good news, if we happen to be one of the 1%. Not quite so good if we're one of the 99%. Still, we wish them well, because they must have earned every cent of it. Arising out of all this, particularly the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, Kelly and Malcolm were so desperate to establish, yesterday Malcolm called for the great corporates to put your customers ahead of profits. That should work a treat. And a week, of course, when we celebrated jingoism, best we forget train killer day, when those who love this country and know our true blue Aussie values were forged on the anvil of Gallipoli, were aghast at the iconoclastic assertion by social commentator Catherine Davini that train killer best we forget day is a Trojan horse for, quote, racism, sexism, toxic masculinity, violence, homophobia, and discrimination. Slur, Lord Rupert of Wapping's True Blue Aussie Trillion with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top headlined. And Lord Rupert's usual suspect Wapping Sin Cullenmas was borderline heart attack as he bemoaned anyone denigrating our invasions and slaughters. And I probably also have to disagree with Catherine. Not sure about toxic masculinity. Although, when we think about it, yeah, that's okay, okay. But on racism, top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for its ongoing campaign against racism after a 20-year-old young bloke of North African origin, 
North Africa, we've invaded there too. That's worth celebrating. A 20-year-old young bloke of North African origin was given a non-custodial sentence. The judge declaring, there is no indication at all he has any connection to Apex, a favourite in Lord Rupert's anti-racist campaign. So, what does the Lord Rupert headline say? Apex Link Gem Raider avoids jail, accompanied by not just one, but two pictures of him, just to prove he's black and therefore different to we law-abiding whites, and describing him as a brute, despite her honour describing the case as exceptional, and he was no danger to the community. But hell, why let a judge who wouldn't have a clue get between Lord Rupert and a little bit of anti-racism? Ditto, finally, plans for a new youth prison, something Lord Rupert knows we desperately need, have been delayed by the discovery of a whole ecology, threatened flora and fauna, on the site in the fast-diminishing western grasslands. The government saying it will spend millions to offset the loss of native habitat. Now, can someone explain to me how we offset the destruction of an environment? Perhaps like we offset class struggle. Oh, well, happy May Day. Good afternoon. And that, of course, was Mr Kevin Healy. And you never know, he might have his own May Day tomorrow, starting at 9 o'clock here at 3CR. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house from the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. Last Friday, another four Palestinians were murdered by the Israeli army on the border between Gaza and Israel, bringing to over 40 the number killed in the past five weeks of peaceful protests leading up to Al-Nakba, the 70th anniversary of the Palestinian catastrophe in 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel, when more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs fled, were expelled from their homes, villages sacked and others killed. Today I'm speaking with Nasser Machni, one of the presenters of Palestine Remembered on 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30. And Nasser will outline the consequences of Al-Nakba for his extended family. I asked him first to focus on Al-Nakba. It didn't start in 1948. One of the um, challenges with mainstream media and, and what we get told is that, you know, the Nakba happened May 15, 1948, when, in fact, the Nakba had been happening at least until, since 1947, and arguably for much longer than that. We're still suffering a Nakba today. And, and if I can, Jan, just go back. The Nakba started from the very first Zionist immigration to, to Palestine, and, and the, the setting up of the kibbutzim that, you know, precluded Palestinians 
from work, denied them access to historical and ancient lands that they'd tended as um, in co-ops, if we will, when absentee landlords sold that land out from underneath them. Through to, you know, the Ilan Pape published a book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, where he details, in fact, the, the Machiavellian plans that the um, Zionists had already designed well and truly before 1947 and 1948, before the British left the mandate of Palestine to, uh, to those there. And what we saw in that book is the, the, the meticulous planning of the Irgun, the Stern Gang and the Haganah, these Israeli terrorist organisations that became the Israeli Defence Force today that's you know, slaughtering people in Gaza every Friday and holds them in a land air-sea blockage for now 11 years, that they had worked out the village elders, and they had worked out those that they could conspire with, uh, and they meticulously, by village, worked out whether they need to surround a village from the east, west and south to drive the residents north, and whether it was to um, surround them from the east, west and um, north to drive them south. And then the planned massacres that occurred before that, you know, culminating in Deria Sin, April 8 and 9 in 1948. And, you know, I mean, the, the stories we hear from the survivors there that the Zionists left some to survive and said, you run north, you run south, you run uh, east and west and tell the villagers you encounter and the other Palestinians that we're on our way. And if they don't want to suffer the same tragedy, they need to run. So whilst the Nusbuk ended, if you will, in, in a historic sense, May 15, 1948. The reality today is Palestinians are suffering an ongoing Nakba. And, and Nakba in Arabic means catastrophe, and, and the catastrophe is of, of parents that are having homes raided in the middle of the night and their children stolen from their beds, you know, 12 and 13, 14 years of age. It's, you know, a parent burying a 15-year-old child that was executed by a sniper whilst they um, were walking away from the fence over the weekend. So the, the ongoing Nakaba is still going, Jan. Could I take you back to your two sets of grandparents? Were they both in that area, Palestine? My father's parents were. were from what is now the West Bank. In fact, I prefer to call it East Palestine. You know, the West Bank was a, a term coined by um, the British and Zionists to... to you know, the West Bank of the Jordan, in fact, it's East Palestine, we're just outside of um, East Jerusalem. For them, uh, because the armistice line uh, ended up, they ended up inside the West Bank, so they didn't suffer the brutality of the cleanse and the uh, murderous rampage of the Zionist terror gangs in, in 47, 48. Though Zen was, for my grandparents, my, my father was arrested and imprisoned uh, by the Israelis, uh, he subsequently escaped. So for them, their Nakba is a story of the loss of a son. The way that reflected itself was in the fact that my father was so worried for their safety that he never told them that he was alive. And so my grandparents died thinking that their son had died in 1947-48. And my father didn't connect back with his family till well into the 70s, by which time his parents had died and he'd never known. So they were buried with the pain of, of a lost son, and sadly he was buried with the pain of a lost parents. Where did he go to? I mean, his travels ultimately brought him to Australia, obviously, but, you know, in the escape, he, you know, he spent some time in Jordan, Lebanon, and ended up here. 
What about your mother's family? My mother's Lebanese. She became a converted Palestinian. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I think you marry somebody like my dad. In fact, it's a great story my mum sh- uh, shares. She, when she married dad, and he was much older than my mother, he said, look, I've got to tell you, I'm already married. And mum was, you know, uh, this was kind of strange. But mum's Christian, my father was Muslim. And she said, you know, look, I'm not sure I really want to be a second wife. Who is this first wife? And my dad said to her, my first wife is Palestine. And uh, my mum said, you know, in her mind went, oh, that's easy. I can I can move her out of the way. <laughs> and uh, she tells now some, you know, almost a dozen years after dad passed that she almost wished he had an actual wife, that Palestine, she could never compete with Palestine. What was it like for you growing up? knowing that you were from Palestine? I'm very proud of my father and his determination never to forget his roots and his responsibility as someone who escaped the boot, if you will, the boot of oppression, that he never, never, he never allowed his opportunity to, to deny uh, his rights, but also, most importantly, to never forget his responsibility to those that were still under the boot of oppression. He was very much about fighting our fight, our just fight for for self-determination and, um, you know, impressed that upon us. What that meant to us as kids, though, is that, you know, and sadly for my kids as well, you know, often Saturday afternoon is in front of the State Library chanting Free Free Palestine and, you know, preparing for for a march. What it means is we, you know, our... um, We never forget the oppression. You know, we're always watching the news, waiting to hear about the latest blood fall. But also, being a Palestinian gives us the opportunity to be, I believe, significantly more human than most people in the West. And I say more human in the sense that when you're a Palestinian, you can appreciate what Aboriginals go through. When you're a Palestinian, you can empathise with uh, the West public struggle. When you're a Palestinian, you understand what uh, the Indigenous uh, Indians, First Peoples of Canada and the United States go through. So our connection to other liberation movements and self-determination movements, I believe, makes us more empathetic and and much more connected. And I say that because, you know, in my professional life and uh, personal life, I've met a lot of Australians, you know, uh, if you will. These Anglo-Celtic background Australians, let's call them, their understanding of... Any struggle, Palestinian, Aboriginal, their connection to what we believe human rights and, and, and a human experience elsewhere in the world is sadly very, very, very limited. And it really disappoints me. And, you know, I use every opportunity I can to talk about the Palestinian cause and how legitimate rights for self-determination and justice. And, but certainly, I, you know, I always come back to, don't we realise that... that you know, we're actually living on stolen ground here in Australia and that as someone who's benefited from the theft of Aboriginal land that was never ceded, you know, we have a responsibility to those first people here. I know you've been back a, a number of times. Can you explain what it's like to set foot in the, the land of your father? And, and has your father, did your father go back? Yeah, so, so my father went back just after 1993 and uh, went back a number of times before he died. Each time hurt more, and I say hurt more because he could see what was happening, you know, the erasure of Palestine and its replacement, replacing of Israel. So 
uh, in 93, just after um, Oslo was signed, East Jerusalem was still very, very Arab. West Jerusalem, you might as well be in some in, in a European city. The, many of the uh, ancient buildings have been corrupted, if you will, knocked down, you know, gaudy, yucky re- uh, renovations. So he, he saw that transition from 93, which is a... Uh, uh, you know, at the time, a great hope for many Palestinians, my father and my family included, to what it ended up being a, a cover for the Judaization of the rest of Palestine, the remaining 22% after Nakba. That being said, he was able to see and pray over his uh, my grandparents, his parents' graves, you know, to visit visit his childhood home where he was born and where he grew up and um, reconnect with his family. So that was that was a blessing in that sense. For me, travelling back, well, as as a brown person in Australia, who, I, you know, I have, to, I say, I sound like us, but I look like them, and and that applies when I'm in Australia, because I sound Australian, and, and I go to the footy and I do it, I, you know, I represent everything that, that is Australia, but I look like them, I look like Osama bin Laden, if you will, and when I'm in Palestine, I look like us, in the sense that I'm an Arab and I look like the other Palestinian Arabs in Palestine, but I sound like them because my Arabic's got a foreign accent to it. The thing, though, about travelling in Palestine is that it's a different sense of home than the sense of home I have in Australia. I mean, I love Australia. I, I, you know, if Palestine were free tomorrow, I'd still choose to live in Australia. That being said, no one has the right to deny my children their choice, their inalienable right as Palestinian refugees to choose to, should they wish, to live in Palestine or any other descendant of a 1948 or 67 otherwise refugee. The sense in in Palestine when I'm there is a home sense. It's a more like a longing and it's, a, it's an ancestral longing. Like, you know, I sat in what is now a land room that was, in fact, uh, you know, the whole living quarters of my grandparents' home on the floor where my father was born, you know, almost 100 years ago. So that feeling of history of attachment, you know, the olive grove that my father used to swing from a tree, you know, uh, in a swing that his father, my grandfather, had fashioned for him. I, I don't have that connection to Australia. That being said, I've spent, you know, close to 50 years in Australia and, you know, all my memories and my life entirely here. At any time I travel anywhere, I can't wait to be home and home for me is Melbourne. Talk briefly, if you could, about the impact of going back to Palestine on your three children, the three different ages of your children. Each of my children, well, my children have travelled to Palestine with me, and my children are political. It's impossible for a Palestinian child not to be political because they're going to be surrounded and see things on the news, and whether it's attending protests or fundraisers or whatever it might be, they, they know that they're different, if you will. I've always, though, been very conscious that I want my children to experience Palestine through their own eyes without me creating a filter for them. And so whether it be uh, movies that we watch and then I, or documentaries and I'll ask them questions as to what they thought, I, 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 I try not to curate um, their thought process. Um, and also that, that translates itself to when we, when we visit Palestine. So... The last time we went, which was a couple of years ago, my eldest son said to me, he said, you know, why are they building on our land if they want peace? You know, my daughter at one point said, you know, why, why have they got so many guns dead? But these conversations are very painful for me to endeavour to explain, but 
they are the words of innocence from, from children who, you know, relay to their cousins what Al-Aqsa Mosque looks like and what it was like to visit and pray because their cousins who are the same age, you know, 10, 11 to 15 years of age, who live four or five kilometres away, have never visited. Yet, bearing the same surname but with an Australian passport, we were able to go. It's great for them to have an attachment to their uh, historical roots and it's also good for them to see, you know, the injustice, the differentiation that today any Jew anywhere in the world can perform alia, go back and receive Israeli citizenship, marry another Jew from anywhere else in the world, having never ever been born there and having, you know, links that are allegedly, you know, biblical, you know, I'm not denying any Jews right to uh, some Old Testament claim to Judaism, but, you know, somebody who might not have been there since uh, the Roman times can claim citizenship, yet my children, whose great-grandparents uh, are buried in our village, where of the 15,000 people in the village, something of the order of 6,000 people share our surname, that they can't move back. That if they chose to marry somebody from from Palestine or inside um, uh, Israel, 48 borders of Israel, that that person they married would have to leave to, if they wanted to, to, to be with them. That, you know, they could never be uh, citizens of Palestine or, or citizens of Israel because... They celebrate God on uh, on a Friday. Finally, Nessa, the 15th of May, what does it mean for you? Sadly, well, it means pain. It means pain because I remember as a child just, you know, my often, although the Nakba never actually happened in one day, that day for my father and us as, as children always signified such pain. That being said today... Sadly, Dad's not around to see it. The rise in Palestinian activism, the rise in awareness of the legitimate rise of the Palestinians to self-determination, you know, it sits on, 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 on the efforts and sacrifice and the shoulders of people like my father, of, of other celebrated Palestinians, and, and the, the work of all of those in the Solidarity Movement that have never let the world forget about Palestine. And May, May 15 today, whilst it's a day that we commemorate the loss of Palestine, it's also a day of inspiration. Because for me today, optimistically, I know Palestine will be free. And I'm more convinced than ever it's going to be in my lifetime. Uh, you know, if you'd asked me a decade or two ago whether I would have seen Palestine free, I, I was sure my father wouldn't. And I didn't think I had any chance. But I'm sure that I will see Palestine free in the next decade or so. Perhaps even earlier. Thanks, Nessa. Thanks, Jen. Thanks to Nessa for sharing his story with us. And you can hear more about Palestine Remembered, 9.30, every Saturday morning. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
The seriously funny Rod Quantock will be at Steps Gallery in Carlton to open a fundraising art show at 3pm on Saturday, May 19th. Works by Arthur Boyd, Lunig, First Dog on the Moon and many, many more will be on sale. There'll be political cartoons from the present and posters from the past, as well as artworks of beauty, joy and wit. All proceeds will support ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize and ICANN's parent organisation, MAPWA, Health Professionals Promoting Peace. All welcome. ICANN and MAPWA are 3CR supporters. Time for the monthly segment with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Everyone likes a win, Bob. You've had one? Yes. Some of the organic certifiers wanted to amend the organic and biodynamic standard earlier in the year, so we uh, mounted a campaign to have it stay the same. The nub of the argument was that at the moment the organic standard requires a five-year in conversion from growing GM crops, particularly canola, but also cotton up in New South Wales and and, uh, Queensland, Some people wanted to get rid of the requirement for a five-year transition and we thought that inappropriate as um, GM canola seed can last for a very long time in the soil. In any event, nearly 4,000 people signed the petition and uh, many of them commented to the standard-setting body. As a result, they decided to leave the standard as it is, which is great, which is what they should do because, of course, it's an international as well as Australian standard and it operates globally and um, it just was a win for us. Are there many instances when you can turn an or a GM paddock or whatever into a, an organic? Well, there are rules about being in transition, and you do need to uh, monitor what's going on there. There's testing done on a whole variety of things, and the argument of the people who wanted the change was, well, it's going to be a minimum of three years anyway. We are going to monitor things, but it would have meant that the... A particular requirement for genetically manipulated seed and land would have been taken completely out of the standard. There wouldn't have been that trigger there to remind everybody, hey, this is uh, an important thing which has got to be monitored and looked out for, especially. Are there many instances where people give up GM and go back to organic? Well, no, I think um, the the thing at the moment is, uh, and I'm really just speculating about this, is that a lot of cotton growers up in New South Wales and Queensland have been growing cotton for a long time. It's a very thirsty crop. With climate change, I think it's going to become much more difficult to grow. You might recall, in fact, that it was the major cotton growers who were charged last year with embezzling more than their water entitlements out of the Murray-Darling Basin and uh, using those uh, extra amounts of water to grow cotton. So I think the cotton industry in the long term is in trouble. Monsanto's Bolgard 3 cotton seed is almost 100% of the crop now, but, um, for instance, China doesn't, uh, hasn't yet approved of Bolgard 3, and so the um, cotton seed export industry took quite a hit this year uh, when the Chinese said they wouldn't take the uh, seed and they were the largest market for Australian cotton seed. It's not straightforward and as a result we think that uh, some of the organic certifiers may have had in mind that they could transition some of those cotton lands into wheat production for the organic industry because there's a chronic shortage of organic wheat in Australia. Uh, The demand has become so strong for organic foods 
It's the fastest growing sector of the food industry that really suppliers have lagged behind and I think some smart operators were thinking, well, we can get those cotton growers into another high-value crop where they can earn a premium out of the cotton which is falling over. I just wonder, Bob, how they got that cotton started in the first place. I mean, they must have known that it was going to take an awful lot of water and that, you know, this is a country where we don't have a lot of water. Someone's got to suffer. Well, it's been a long-term industry, you know, from the 1970s and 80s. In fact, American cotton growers came here, migrated to Australia and really set up the industry. And they've partnered now for a long time with Australian scientists through the Australian Cotton Foundation with CSIRO and others. So although the cotton is owned by Monsanto, it's actually been developed at Australian expense by Australian scientists for Australian conditions. Since 1996, some GM cotton has been grown in Australia and it's gradually developed into an industry where it's dominated by genetically manipulated varieties, which are now talking about um, expanding into the Ord up in the uh, north of Western Australia as well. Uh, it's been tried there a couple of times previously, but they're having another go again this season. There are Chinese interests uh, there investing heavily in it and talking about building infrastructure to gin cotton and so on. It's trying to hold on, but it's a rival for things like rice, which also demand a huge amount of water, and really Australia shouldn't be growing them. We've got Murray-Darling chronic problems. Those problems need to be fixed, and agriculture is going to have to realign itself whether it will realign into the organics industry or not is hard to say, but I think that's what some people are thinking, and this is the reason that they wanted to try to make the transition from GM to organic smoother and shorter, and we've said no, and in the end, the Australian community has been listened to on this occasion, which is a good win for uh, gene ethics and, uh, and for the organic industry too, I think. Just staying with cotton for a moment, where does that cotton go to? Who's, who's buying it? Well, generally into Asia. India is the biggest cotton producer, but um, the rest of Asia, of course, is uh, producing clothes for the world. So it goes into uh, all of those Southeast Asian countries and into China for production of um, cheap garments for the world. Cotton really is the supreme number one fibre for, uh, for the use in, in clothing production. Wool, of course, is up there, which um, Australia produces as well. But for your everyday garment, cotton, aside from the synthetics, of course, which are dependent on oil, for their production, cotton is number one. So um, Australia is regarded as a very high-quality producer, and uh, it goes into Southeast Asia for turning into cheap clothes. We've got the federal election later this year, and you've been doing your homework looking at what can be done, what should be done and what will be done by the various parties? Well, we expect the um, election to be later this year. Of course, it could be early next, but um, certainly Turnbull and his uh, crew are positioning themselves. So we've been doing some thinking, yes, on uh, what a, our political program would be. And, and, of course, the Greens have got their um, national policy forum coming up in the middle of May, so <laughs> it's only a couple of weeks away and the ALP in July, so we're talking to the parties about what we would like, telling them what our druthers are. We've tried to set our policy about genetically manipulated crops and food and health care and a whole raft of other things because there are 
new genetic engineering technologies that are coming along now. You'll have heard of some of them, CRISPR, RNAi, ZFN, and so on. On the agricultural front, we've said front and centre that regenerative and eco-agricultural systems of food, fibre and fuel production have got to be the way to go. As I've just been talking about cotton, you can see that industrial agriculture everywhere is really in trouble. It's dependent on non-renewable resources like oil, like phosphates, and with the climate changing, it's becoming ever more fragile. So we're saying to um, the political parties that regenerative and eco-agricultural systems have got to be the way to go because they're going to reduce the amount of synthetic chemicals that are used. They're not going to need genetically manipulated crops to prop them up. And we just need to be getting smarter about how we produce those uh, core things on which human survival depends. That means uh, those new systems and getting away from the industrial production which uh, depends more and more on the intensification of uh, particularly animal production. Um, we've got um, trillions of chickens sitting on a space the size of an A4 sheet of paper. It's unacceptable from a, an animal health and welfare point of view. It's unsustainable. So we're saying to the parties, get on with it, invest research and development resources in those new production systems, stop exclusively funding industrial agriculture to try to keep propping it up as you are at the moment and move on. Give us some more examples. Of regenerative and eco-agricultural systems, well, we'll need you to read a book about that and uh, The Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey is um, the most recent and very cogent argument for how you would go about regenerating Australia's degraded uh, soils and uh, getting fertility back into soil and producing food that's fit to eat. A recent report said that 75% of the arable land globally is in a terrible condition. Uh, we've seen a recent report from Argentina, for example, that the huge area of the Pampas there, which was, of course, originally forested, was deforested, say, a century ago, is now so degraded that um, groundwater has risen in excess of 30% of all that arable, very rich land is now uh, waterlogged permanently. There are new watercourses simply cutting themselves through the pampas and the production system is falling over. So it's one stark example of how you can wreck an environment. And of course, Australian farmers, unfortunately, since the first settlers came in and deconstructed and destroyed indigenous farming systems two centuries ago. Well talked about in the book Dark Emu by uh, Bruce Pascoe, Australian agriculture has been unsustainable and now we just need a new way of proceeding. But many farmers still haven't quite got the message yet, even though they're not able to uh, get any bigger than they are or get out, which, which they were told to do. And uh, governments are stuck on funding research and development into, try, into trying to make these in, industrial systems which are falling over continue to uh, be the core of Australian agriculture. It's, it's hopelessly unsustainable. We need to move on and we need to do it quickly because we need to transition to those systems that are going to feed, house and clothe our um, population into the future. 
At the moment, of course, governments are focused on the uh, revenues from simply growing as much of commodities, wheat, barley and so on, uh, meat, of course, on the hoof, exporting those things without value-adding in Australia, relying on uh, essentially mining Australian agricultural systems for export. It's obvious what the problems are, that governments think they can fix them by getting uh, technology on the job. Technology has caused the problems. It's not the solution. We need to move on to regenerative systems. And the role of the federal regulators? Well, the federal regulators, yes. We want them to actually do their job because um, at the moment there are a whole raft of new genetic manipulation techniques coming in. The regulators at the moment are talking about deregulating uh, before the products of these new CRISPR and other techniques arrive, even though we know that they've got no history of safe use. They are known to have off-target effects, and yet our regulators, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, are currently in a deregulatory process saying these things can come to our farms, can come into our food supply, can come into our health systems, essentially with no regulation. Totally unsatisfactory. And this government, of course, from its very genesis, we saw in, in 2014 that they were deregulators. As soon as elected, Barnaby Joyce set about deconstructing the new system that was, had been put in place by the previous government to um, assess and um, re-register uh, all of those hundreds, indeed thousands, of old agricultural chemicals which are being used out on farms that were registered 50 and 60 years ago before there was modern testing, before there was modern toxicology, that that system would have started to re-register and reassess all of those chemicals and get rid of the most toxic of them. This is now what the USA requires every 15 years. Every agricultural chemical requires reassessment and re-registration. In Europe, it's 10 years. So we're lagging way behind the times. The government acted on the instructions of the chemical industry that poured money into the election coffers of uh, the parties in order to get them to comply and they wiped out that new chemical assessment and re-registration scheme. We want it reinstated after this election. Whoever's the government needs to get on with uh, ensuring that they take a precautionary approach to the use of synthetic chemicals out in our environment and on our farms. At the moment, showing no signs of doing that, but even on the basis of the argument that we should be doing what our trading partners are doing, exercising precaution, we think that that scheme has to be reinstated. And just the impact of these chemicals on the farmers and their families? Well, I suppose the most celebrated um, argument about that has also been going on uh, for the last several years with the, the Committee on uh, Cancer Research saying uh, now four years ago, I believe, that um, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is a probable human carcinogen. It was long overdue that that would be... Um, said publicly by someone. The industry has pushed back, of course, very, very strenuously against it. But we see in Europe that um, the registration of glyphosate has only been extended for five years instead of 15, which is the usual. It's almost certain to be phased out there because several European countries are currently engaged in getting rid of Roundup 
out of their farm production systems and they've already said that it can't be sold in nurseries and um, other outlets to the public. Uh, in France, in Germany, this is happening. So we see that as the most used herbicide in the world, that Roundup uh, is in trouble. It should be phased out. Again, the Australians have said the APVMA, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, has said we don't believe the evidence about Roundup. It can remain and... Um, business as usual as far as the Australian ag and vet chemical regulators are concerned. We need a change of thinking, we need precaution and we need that scheme back in place to look at all of the chemicals, particularly the older ones that are still in use, that have been banned in many countries overseas and are impacting the health of farm workers, farmers and of course the public that ends up eating the food uh, with those chemical residues in them. But it's still pretty macho out there on the land. Often people use these chemicals without proper health and safety protection for themselves and their workers. The, the short-term and the long-term impacts, of course, are even more critical that uh, young people working on farms need to be thinking about what their future life is going to be like once they've been exposed to some very toxic substances out there. So I think things need to be tightened up and we need our regulators to be doing their job and just get on with the uh, work of uh, reassessing and re-registering those chemicals. The unfortunate thing, of course, is that Barnaby Joyce also transferred the APVMA, the regulator, up into his own electorate in Armadale. The regulator has shared a lot of staff because they just said, we're not willing to move from Canberra. So it's really in, in ferment, in turmoil at the moment. But nonetheless, the boss of the APVMA is saying, oh, we're doing great. We're um, processing more applications than ever. We're doing them quicker than ever, and we're doing a great job. Whereas if you look at it carefully, I think we'd have to say that quicker is not better. And so we need to phase out those chemicals and get on with the job of researching, developing, and introducing the regenerative and eco-agricultural systems that will be the way for farm and food production in the future. It can't wait. We've got to act quickly because those industrial systems are falling over everywhere. Farmers are moving off the land. Corporates are moving in. It's not a sustainable system for feeding, housing and clothing Australians, which should be the main uh, business of our farming systems. And also, Bob, the acknowledgement of climate change by some people in certain parties still putting their heads in the sand. Well, yes, yes, coal's still on the agenda, of course, of the ruling coalition at the moment. I don't know that Labor's that much better, but we do need to get into renewables and get out of coal. Of course, the production of electricity is only a small part of the whole energy scene, so uh, we've got to find some new things to drive our cars on, beside oil as well. Energy is another thing that needs um, quick action and clear action and clear policies. I mean, we're just generally saying that we support change going on in that area as well because uh, our agricultural systems are subject to climate change. We see that things like cotton are marching south as the climate changes, but uh, many of our crops are under stress and feeding Australians is not the highest priority. Our government's highest priority is producing mass commodities, bulk commodities for export overseas, for export earnings without value-adding in Australia, and that has to change. And there's other industries that are moving south too, isn't there? 
thinking about the, the wine industry moving into Tasmania. You would never have thought that 10, 15 years ago. Yes, well, that is an example. And, of course, it's going more and more organic as well, moving away from those toxic synthetic chemicals. That is a good trend. But, of course, wine, while it's um, nice to have on your table, is not feeding the nation. And we've got to get local, clean and green. We need, do need production that um, is going to sustain the nation and of course over the last several weeks there's been a major controversy, another problem for the organic industry in particular in that as a biosecurity measure the federal government is talking about requiring all the seeds of brassicas which is the uh, cabbages, cauliflower and, and related crops that what we found out now is that 98% of all vegetable seed in Australia is imported it's produced in major centres overseas by foreign transnational companies. It comes into Australia and now the federal authorities are saying that all brassica seed will be required to be treated with fungicides before it arrives in order to deal with a couple of pathogens that have been found in brassicas in Australia. The organic industry, of course, is understandably outraged Conventional growers should be similarly outraged that something like that is imposed. There are management systems that could cope with uh, the potential incursion of these pathogens into Australia, but it's the same old quick fix. OK, we'll dip everything in fungicide. Everything will be A-OK. Um, it isn't A-OK. Um, there needs to be a proper public discussion. And the response, of course, was an online petition mounted by the organic industry, which got... Uh, tens of thousands of signatories in the space of a couple of weeks. So we hope that the Federal Department of Agriculture won't just sail ahead with that proposal. We'll look at the alternatives and options and think about, firstly, what it means that the virtually 100% of our seed comes in from overseas so the nation is absolutely reliant on other sources of supply for the fundamentals of its food. We're not saving seed in Australia to any extent, our um, alternative seed companies are small and struggling to supply the gardeners who want to grow food in their backyards even, but for the commercial growers, absolutely dependent on a supply of seed from overseas. We shouldn't assume with the current geopolitics in our region that these seeds are always going to be available, and yet that's the assumption. Oh yes, year after year, these seeds are going to be available from these transnational companies. The seed supply is now going to be, as a result of mergers, concentrated in the ownership and control of uh, probably just a half a dozen companies with three of the majors uh, owning and controlling something of the order of 60 to 70% of the world's seed supply as a whole. This is not in the public interest. This is a dangerous situation. Uh, we can see prices being jacked up supplies being truncated, our food supply becoming more fragile, not secure in the future. This requires public policy changes urgently. Again, it's another campaign that we uh, are having with the federal government uh, to get good party policy for the next election. I think there's enough there to keep you off the streets for a while, Bob. Yes, well, there certainly is. Uh, of course, we're looking for other changes as well. At, right at the moment, of course, there is a review of the National Gene Technology Scheme going on. We're up to phase three of that review. The um, 
government is calling for a comment on their draft or their preliminary findings. The Federal Health Department has put out a document of preliminary findings. They want public comment by Thursday, May the 24th. If people want to engage in that review process, we really would encourage them. So it's just a matter of Googling National Gene Technology Scheme Review and uh, that will bring up the appropriate page. Uh, we will have a cyber action out next week. Friends of the Earth and Gene Ethics are working on it at the moment. We'll have some crib sheets and so you can also, of course, contact Gene Ethics on 1300 133 868 or email us at info at geneethics.org to become engaged with the National Review of the Gene Technology Scheme. And, of course, that was Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Early bird community tickets available for 3CR subscribers and City of Yarra residents and workers until May 7th. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. Malaysia's 14th general election will be contested on the 9th of May. A snap election, only announced last month, described by one commentator as a do-or-die battle that will determine the destiny of Malay's ruling coalition, Barisan Nationale, after six decades, and the leadership of the Prime Minister, Najib Razak. I spoke with activist Lee Tan and asked if it's usual that there is a snap election like this one. For Malaysia, this is probably, it might have happened before, uh, I can't quite recall, but for this particular one, it was called on April the 10th, nomination only just happened last Saturday, so essentially candidates only have 11 days to campaign, and for as you know, many Malaysians work overseas or study overseas. And for them, you know, many of them are flying back to Malaysia because they're so concerned about the country's future. But some others who can't afford to fly back or travel back from Singapore, for example, where a large majority of Malaysians work, they would cast the poster vote, but you know, given such a short period of time, some are very doubtful if they could, if they can um, receive their ballot paper before and, and to be able to send it back to Malaysia uh, on the day of the ele- of the poll. So, you know, there's a petition actually going around, yeah, stating that this has been a really, really precarious situation where, you know, some people might not be able to send their postal vote in time and therefore it's not fair and free. What reasons are there for people to be concerned about the future for this election? I think people are, there are enough people concerned enough. Definitely the, the higher, you know, the better informed people in urban areas, I don't think they need convincing, uh, which 
decide to vote for. Predominantly the rural communities and the indigenous communities, particularly in the eastern Malaysian states of Sabah and Sarawak, yeah, where, you know, the old kind of traditional tribalism or whatever still work and it's easier for the National Front government, or BN we call them, to actually bribe, and that's often been the practice. They, they would bribe the headman uh, or the village leader, and then the village leader will undertake the task to make sure everybody vote for BN. And that's how, you know, it has been difficult for people to change the voters' preference in those places. Yeah, so, but Sabah might be different this time because they have a new party form and that party is kind of running on uh, uh, localism, basically. Yeah, and they are not part of the uh, National Front uh, coalition either. So, you know, Sabah might go to the opposition with a lot of hope. Uh, Sarawak is still going to be the difficult one. And what are the main issues? Oh, there are lots of main issues in this election. As we know, the 1MDB scandal, financial scandal where billions of dollars have been basically siphoned out of a supposedly sovereign fund in Malaysia, mostly from uh, petroleum um, revenues, but also uh, siphoned from various different lucrative economic activities uh, like the oil palm and even the pension fund is not spared. So a huge amount of public funds has been siphoned out of the country through various different means to many different countries, including Australia, investing in a whole lot of um, uh, bogus real estates and, and uh, projects. And along the way, those in power cream off, um, you know, fake profit or what do you call that, um, inflated pr- uh, price transfer and so on and so forth. And part of it is, is used for to fund the elections. And this is not the first time. Apparently, uh, the last election was funded through this kind of mean as well because this siphoning happened uh, in 2009, since 2009. The last election was 2013. And while in USA people are talking about Cambridge Analytica, but in reality Malaysia already had used Cambridge Analytica in the past to win election, particularly the the Barisan, the National Front or BN coalition. So you know, because of all these, it has been really challenging for the opposition to try and uh, put across their points because you get. You know, all these um, cyber troopers hired through, engaged through probably companies like Cambridge Analytica to distort views um, and also to distract people from the real issues. Myself, I have had experience dealing with that when we were running the Linus campaign or the Stop Linus campaign. Uh, yeah, as some of the listeners may recall, it is about an Australian company, Corporation, Linus Corporation, uh, you know, exporting its um, rare earth concentrate to a industrial park, a park in Malaysia near, near Kuantan, uh, happens to be my hometown for processing, leaving huge amount of um, radioactive waste and toxic waste behind. 
At that time, when we were running the campaign, what we found is um, on Facebook particularly, uh, you have people, you know, with fake accounts posting all kinds of quite standard issues or standard comments. You know that they, they, they're not wrong. They, they, they kind of have truth. You know, they would acknowledge certain things, but they will lessen the impact to persuade public to accept it. And the same things happen for this election, although the, the people who are on social media are more aware of it now. Yeah. So there's a whole range of issues. Uh, another part that's related to the election specifically is the, the, linear, uh, the lineation that's happening, which is uh, election boundary re, uh, redrawing. That happened only in March and is drawn specifically on ethnic lines in urban areas, particularly in the state of Selangor, which is now under the opposition rule. So BN is very keen, of course, to try and win back that state, and they hope through this change of boundary, electoral boundary, it will favour the government. The, the government, but. You know, this election is going to be interesting, particularly because former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad, which I think uh, many Australians are quite familiar with, as once he was uh, called a recalcitrant by our own Prime Minister Paul Keating. Mahathir is 93 years old, and a lot of the problems in Malaysia now with the governance breakdown, he was responsible for. But this election, he was willing to stand up uh, and stick his neck into politics again from his retirement to join the opposition of all things, people who had, whom he had jailed before, to try to fight against the BN coalition to get rid of the Prime Minister Najib um, Raza. So that makes the election extremely heatedly contested. And we're, we're expecting a lot of, you know, different tactics being used. Uh, the outcomes is very uncertain, but the result will be very, very close. Well, it's not just joining the opposition party, it's becoming the leader. Yeah, yes. Uh, at 93, he's, um, yeah, basically the leadership wasn't his choice, but it was the opposition coalition which who decided that in order to win more Malay votes, particularly in a rural area where he was very popular or he is probably still quite popular because of the so-called economic development that he's brought. Yeah, and by and large, you know, during Mahathir's time for all his votes, economic growth in the rural sector has actually been lifted, you know, from an environment. The point of view, of course, I dislike oil palm and all that, but, you know, for the rural folks, he was respected for their economic opportunities. Yeah. So, yes, he will be running as um, candidate for prime minister if the opposition wins. Yeah. And so that's all very interesting. It's making the election a very colourful one. How important is the Chinese vote? Well, the Chinese votes are quite set already. Most of them will not vote for... 
UN coalition, except for, for those who are still hanging around the MCA, which is the Malaysian Chinese Association. That party has lost memberships like nothing, and they have very few followers now. They have no hope at all of winning any seat. So the, the Chinese and the Indians, will, many of them will be voting. The majority will be voting for the opposition, yes. What about the youth of Malaysia? How are they getting on? The young people? Oh, the youth. Yes, I think it was interesting. It was Mahathir himself who said that the future of Malaysia depends a lot on the youth. I think by that he meant the Malay youth. They're better educated, they're more actively involved in social media, communication, and they're more likely to understand politics for what it's worth than, you know, their folks back home um, who are more parochial. So I guess the youth in Malaysia, or the Malay youth, will be, and, and, you know, both Malay and the Chinese or the Indians are more likely to swing towards the opposition, especially knowing that their future is at stake because of the 1MDB scandal. I mean, I have nephews still living and working in Malaysia. I mean, he fears for his future because, you know, he's worked so hard, he's contributed to superannuation, and yet, you know, knowing that that subordination is being siphoned out. He's not sure whether he's going to have a future and whether or not, you know, there's any money left by the time he retires. So they they are very concerned. And, of, of course, the job prospect. The country has gone into a, a slowdown because of um, the sudden drop in investor confidence. Uh, and also the Malaysian ringgit has fallen to an all-time low because of uh, also because of investor confidence and Malaysia's standing in the international arena. Yes. Where does religion come into an election like this? Yes, now this is very interesting. In the past, the Islamic party, uh, which is PAS, was a... In, a party in the opposition coalition, but re- last year or the year before, BN has met, well, there's been evidence that BN has paid huge amount of money to buy over the leadership of uh, the Islamic party. And the Islamic party past has been splitted into two factions. One still remain with the Islamic party past and the other one has um, formed another party. And the offshoot of past has joined the opposition uh, coalition. Those are the ones who refuse to be part of that money politics of uh, BN. So, you know, that again dilute that vote in seats where they have won in the past. So because of the split in the Islamic party, people think that Kelantan and Trenganu, both states that have traditionally been um, kind of past stronghold, may fall to the opposition this time. Has Anwar been forgotten or is he? Uh, no, he's still sitting in jail. <laughs> One of the um, promises Mahathir made is uh, when he become prime minister, he will release Anwar. He fell short of apologizing to people whom he had jailed before. And within the opposition coalition, there are many political leaders whom he had jailed before. And they had kind of 
you know, pardon him uh, in return for his um, redemption, hopefully. Anyway, he convinced a voter, look, I'm 93. How long could, can I leave? You know, give me I, the maximum I can be a prime minister is two years. And in these two years, I want to undo the past wrongs. And that's kind of a strong enough promise for many people in Malaysia. Is there any concern that there will be corruption at the the, the polling booths? And oh, look, this already it's already happening. Even in you know, with regards to the question of um, international election monitoring, um, this has already happened. Malaysia claimed that, or the Electoral Commission claimed that it has invited. 14 countries, and Australia was included, but nobody knows who in Australia has been invited or whether or not he's fair and, you know, free, independent agent. But there's one particular case in um, in UK. It claims that it has invited somebody from a Malaysian Commonwealth Study Centre linked with Trinity College in Cambridge a university and an investigative journalist and, and myself who happened to know somebody in Cambridge checked it up. Basically nobody knew about that particular centre and on the further checking it was actually a centre well paid by Najib's stolen money. So you know that's already happening and that's only one case and the other country that had agreed to participate only one country has a democratic index higher, just, you know, one, one position higher than Malaysia, and that was East Timor or Timor-Leste. The rest are countries like Kyrgyzstan, Maldives, you know, Thailand that has a military coup, Cambodia that has got its own problematic corruption and, uh, and electoral frauds, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we know the election's not going to be fair. And even on Saturday, you know, at, on nomination day, there's already a lot of problems with the Electoral Commission. Basically, BN candidates won three seats by default because the Electoral Commission has imposed sometimes unlawful conditions on the opposition candidate. In one case, the candidate turned up very early knowing that the uh, submission time for, the, for their nomination paper is very short. He turned up very early. They delayed his entry into the submission building. And by the time he was allowed in, it was 10.03. And the cutoff time was 10 o'clock, and they rejected him on that ground. So the incumbent, well, the opposition candidate basically got won the seat unchallenged because of that. So that sort of happened a lot with opposition candidates in different parts of the country. And that's really problematic when you have an electoral commission, which is supposedly independent from, uh, you know, of the executive. They're actually pendling to the executive's whims and fancy. But it never has been, has it? Um, it's always been like that, actually. Uh, and that's the problem with so-called election in Malaysia. It's never been free and fair. And in the past, uh, we found that our my father, who had passed away a long time ago, you know, his name was in the last election roll, which means that, you know, the govern, government had probably used his name to vote for, the, uh, for BN. 
so that's how it happened, not only just in our family, but many other people had found that people who has been dead for years suddenly been revived to vote in favour of the Barisan National Coalition. Yes. Lucky to talk about a bill that recently passed in Parliament that's banning fake news. Yes. Yes. That's, an, that's interesting. I mean, that only has been passed, as you know, before the election was called, precisely to try and put fear in the people for, you know, posting truth, actually, um, that criticizes the government and, you know, to basically, you know, challenge the government for all its faults and frauds and corrupt deals. But it actually hasn't got much effect. It has some effect, but it actually hasn't stopped Malaysian from using social media. And there's definitely been a lot of um, information for voters. They've just pitched it quite carefully, um, you know, so that they don't get caught um, spreading fake news, so-called. I mean, again, that's a very anti-democratic measure by a government that has a lot to hide. I mean, it's interesting that since the 1MDB scandals, the government's the one that's been spreading fake news. And of course, you know, it's, it's use of Cambridge Analytica speaks volume for who has been spreading fake news to distort from the truth, um, to try and persuade and manipulate public opinions and perception. And also, Lee, who decides what is fake news or not? Exactly. That's exactly the question that many people in the legal professions are asking. You know, how do you define fake news? In, you know, I would say that most people post when they have something that they have read and they have some views that they want to express and it's in the in interest of the country and it can't be considered as fake news. You know, their information may not be 100%, but if they're posting in the interest of the country <clears throat> or in national interest, surely they have the freedom of expression to be able to, you know, voice out like most democracy allowed. So Malaysia is one country where this fake news act has been enforced, but it hasn't actually been, nobody that I, I think in the past I have seen uh, posting in Malaysia saying that the police has been, you know, catching people, posting certain news and so on and so forth. But how true that is, I'm not sure. There is a saying that um, up to six years in jail, something like that. Yeah, the penalty is quite severe and, and also a hefty fine. And for most of the urban people who do social media, you know, they, they, they're they already struggling financially. They're not going to want to be caught for posting fake news. So, But the lawyers advise people you can actually put a qualification to say you're just checking whether this is true or not. And a lot of people have been doing that. So you see a lot of information being posted and then they say, oh, we're not sure whether it's true or not, just checking. So, you know, from that qualification, it's difficult for to prosecute them, basically. Another issue is the use of, it was quite, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sad, but, you know, it's also quite funny that, it seems the Malaysian government has paid a Russian, whatever, they call them the Russian bots. Um, they do tweeters. They send out hundreds and thousands of tweeters. So they use 
tweeters do tweets, and they were like 50 or hundreds and thousands of tweets suddenly went out as soon as, soon as the election was announced. And funnily enough, they, the whoever buy that service didn't check that these tweets had the Clelic scripts in them. I mean, no Malaysian would write in Clelic script. Most of them don't know how to write it. So I think because many of the investigative journalists has been looking at this stuff, uh, you know, with, with regard to the American election, Google, I mean, not Google, Twitter's was kind of notified and they started to check and they had to delete something like 500 accounts and um, yeah, they noticed that you know, this tweet started to go out as soon as the Malaysian election was announced. So clearly somebody from BN has paid you know, some agent in Russia to do that because they're too damn lazy to do their own homework and hard work and really they are trying to defend situation which they have created which are totally indispensable undis- uh, because of all the fraud and corruption and scandals and so on and so forth. So this election is going to be very interesting. We are quite concerned that the government may use underhanded way to further erode democracy. And that's why we're trying to crank up some media attention to the situation in Malaysia. And, you know, we will be putting out some information to the media and also advocate, you know, at the political level through some parliamentarians in Australia and all around the world through the Bursay Network, which is the Clean Election uh, Advocate Network. Well, three days after Malaysians go to the polls, Timorese yes. go back to the polls for the second time in less yes. than a year. Yes. It's been called an already bitter election. What went wrong with the first one, Lee? The first election, the different the major parties, which is Fratelin and CNRT, they, none of them actually won absolute majority. So it depends on the minor parties, in which there are many, to form coalition with them. And around September last year, the Fratelin coalition, which has first claimed victory and was in government for several months, could not continue because um, one of their minor parties had pulled out. Um, so they had this budget and you know proposed development plan, which they could not get passed in parliament. And so they resorted to what they should they they had to do, which is to call a re-election, and that's of course scheduled for the 12th of May on the Saturday. One thing I forgot to say with the Malaysian election is they deliberately call an election on the in the middle of the of the week on a Wednesday, knowing that you know most Malaysian who. Yeah, worked in Singapore and they need time to get back to vote uh, because, you know, they don't trust postal vote and so on and so forth. Anyway, back to the Timor election. So, you know, I think uh, this time the Timorese are quite disappointed. The, of course, Fresselin has been very frustrated that they could not get consensus and they could 
not get enough support. They describe it as non-constructive and uh, a very costly exercise to have to call for a re-election. For the voters, they feel like, you know, they've been let down by their, their political leaders. There's been no real development in the rural area. Even Ramos Hota has, has came out criticizing past Timorese government for their failures in bringing development to the people in the rural, rural sector, you know, by way of better education, better sanitation and, and economic opportunities and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there's prediction that voter turnout may be much, much lower because they, they are a bit sick and tired of politics. Yeah, except People in the in the urban centre are still, you know, quite geared up for it. I've been in touch with some people, and um, they're hoping that the the re-election will de- will deliver a much clearer margin for whichever party that will win. And what's the chances that that will happen? Don't know. Actually, I'm not as hopeful as they are. I think there's been a lot of uh, disenfranchisement happening around the country with politics, and it's probably time the major parties lift up their game and to actually start listening to the people, the small people whose voices have not been heard. I think, from my own experience, I feel that politicians in the major party tended to be quite arrogant and very top-down, and it is really time that they start humble themselves to listen to the people's uh, grievances and start channeling precious resources and revenue that has a limited time from the oil and gas resources in Timor Gap to places where it is needed and not wasted on luxury cars and, you know, projects that's not going to deliver long-term outcomes. What difference will the signing of the maritime boundary make in this election? Well, apart from being clearer in terms of revenue streams for the next 10 years or so, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference. I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, really for them, the revenue hasn't actually flowed down or trickled down to them anyway for the majority of the people. Most of them probably are not even that aware apart from the urban um, better informed people. And that was activist Lee Tan. That interview was recorded a couple of days ago. I'll just read you a correction that Lee Tan sent me. A correction to my statement on Malaysian working, Malaysians working in Singapore. I have just discovered that the Electoral Commission have disallowed them to cast postal votes as the only way they can cast their vote is to return to their homeland. She also adds, in any case, most Malaysians believe that the extent of vote ringing has been so bad, postal notes, postal votes are almost always tampered with. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Last month, over 80 delegates, farmers, scientists and development workers from the Asia-Pacific region joined peasant farmers in the Philippines for a five-day conference with the aim of stopping the introduction of so-called golden rice, which is a genetically modified organism which the proponents claim will significantly address hunger and vitamin A deficiency. The conference was organised by Massipag, and the Stop the Golden Rice Network in the Philippines and facilitated by the Anti-Poverty Commission. Fran Murrell, co-founder of the group MADGE, attended the meeting and when we spoke yesterday, I asked her about the group, its aims and research work. It stands for Mothers of Demystifying Genetic Engineering but also Mothers Advocating Deliciously Good Eating. And we started in 2007 when the Victorian government were thinking about lifting the ban on growing GM canola, which they did. But we just thought we needed to let people know what they're eating and give them a choice if they wanted to avoid it. And who's we? Oh, well, we've got a little committee and we've also got people in our networks, you know, via Facebook and we send out a digest and we're on Twitter as well. So we are whoever takes an interest in food and we do know that, you know, people have been writing to their politicians, organising their lives so they can protect themselves from this stuff. So I think it's pretty good. What was your interest, though, that led you to this? Where did it come from? It was when my kids were born in the mid-1990s. I was doing a grad dip at Melbourne Uni in environmental studies. I found out about pesticides and that completely freaked me out because I realised how toxic they are and how even though we know they are harmful, they are all around us. And I thought, GM crops? They will reduce pesticide use, so they'll be really good. So that sparked my interest, and then I started looking into GM crops, and then I realised that actually they're just another way to sell pesticides. So is this taking you outside Australia? Is it your work with Madge prior to this? Yeah, it has. So I've been to Toronto, to, to Canada, and I went to California to talk in a heritage seed festival there, and then I've just been to the Philippines. Tell me about the Philippines, um, a very troubled place. Yeah, well, I just sort of whizzed in and whizzed out for five days, but it was incredibly interesting because it was the Stop Golden Rice Network Conference, and Golden Rice is a GM rice. And it was organised by Mazipag, which is a Filipino organisation of farmers and scientists that was established when they saw how disastrously the Green Revolution was sort of sweeping away their agriculture. And there were 80 people from all over Asia, with about 30 groups. So people were from India, Indonesia, Taiwan, Sri Lanka, China. Pacific? 
No, no one from the Pacific. But anyway, it was a really broad, and and people from the Vietnam couldn't come, but they did send a PowerPoint. You know, someone did their presentation for them. Where did the name golden rice come from? Well, it's this rice that is slightly golden in colour, and the idea is that it's got beta carotene in it, which is a precursor to vitamin A. So the stated aim is to ensure that um, people with vitamin A deficiency can eat this rice and get vitamin A. It's a GM rice, and it's been in development for about 20 years by the International Rice Research Institute, which is called IRI. And um, and that gets money from Syngenta and the Gates Foundation and other big biotech companies. So it's been held up as this poster child for genetic engineering in that we can stop children dying and um, make sure they don't go blind. However, you actually don't need rice to get vitamin A. You need vegetables and fruits and a little bit of fat so you can eat it. So what you need is a varied diet. And if you eat a varied diet, then you will get all your other nutrients as well, so not just vitamin A. And the thing is, is that vitamin A, in too high doses, it can be toxic like anything. So just by concentrating on one little thing in a diet, it's really symptomatic of what's wrong with the industrial approach to food. You need variety. You need a cuisine, not rice. So what's been happening is it's been promised that it's going to be ready for 20 years and it hasn't appeared. And by looking at the IRI website that you can see that there are problems with yield and there was problem, you know, other problems with performance with it. But finally, what happened was our regulators, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, received an application to approve this rice. So Australia's not going to grow it. We are not going to import it. But it's being done so that if rice is contaminated that's imported into Australia, then it won't be a trade issue. So we were looking at this as a trade issue, basically. Fazant's approved it. They said it was safe. They said they didn't, they didn't need to look at if it worked or not. They just have to decide whether it's safe. And their decision about whether it's safe or not is taking information from the developer of the rice. There are no feeding studies and the data that they have received is basically full of holes. So they've approved it on what I think is very sketchy grounds. I mean, you know, not one animal feeding study, It's it, and there's no proof that this works. But from looking at what they did receive, you can see that you'd have to eat about four kilos of the rice a day to get the same amount of beta carotene as from a carrot. So it's like this is a complete furphy if you're trying to say that this is going to solve the vitamin A problem because you might as well either give vitamin sublets or, or make sure people have carrots and mangoes and coriander and other things. Well, obviously, there's a lot of money in this. Yeah, absolutely. So what this is is a kind of smokescreen for people in the West to think, oh, yeah, this is really good because children aren't going to die and go blind. I mean, no one wants children to die and go blind, but this is not the saviour. So it was actually really interesting to go over to the Philippines and meet people on the ground to find out what they thought about all of this because because Australia has approved it, it means that places like Bangladesh and the Philippines, if they want to, can go ahead and plant this rice without having to have 
any further approvals in their country. So you can imagine you go over there and their staple food has been potentially contaminated by Australia's approval. I mean, it's pretty awful. How did it get to that? Well, this is a mystery, but this is the mystery of, of our regulatory bodies all around the world. It's like, who are they regulating for? They're not really, in my view, regulating to protect public health, because if they were doing that, they would actually ask for proper studies. They'd ask for feeding studies. They'd ask for long-term studies looking at fertility or looking at developmental issues or all sorts of things. But they don't do that. So it's just a mystery of how our globe works. It seems to work to regulate the public so corporations can do whatever they want. Talk about some of the people that were there. Over five days, you must have met with a lot of people. Yeah, there were some fantastic people there. One of the organisers, Anna Bibal, was from Mazipag. She was a very dynamic woman. And she basically said, this rice is being developed by white men in countries where rice is not the staple food and it's completely outrageous and I thought Anna you are totally right she's an incredibly smart woman and what she put together was this really interesting group of people from all over Asia so there were there were um, scientists there were farmers, there were women who were working with rural communities, there were women farmers, you know, there was a, a broad range of people. And what I realised is that the huge issue is a lack of democracy, which means a lack of access to land, a lack of access to resources, and a lack of being heard and taken seriously. And the stories that kept coming out again and again were the same. So I met this wonderful woman from Sri Lanka and she was talking about what is happening is that foreign corporations are coming in and doing developments. So the government is very supportive of those developments. And when those developments are doing things like cutting off the supply of river water to farmers, which is their irrigation, which means then you can't farm, that is ignored. And it appears that what the aim is, is to relocate farmers off the land into the cities and then that land will be used for corporate farming. And we will then also have high-end ecotourism in beautiful spots. And I just thought, look, I like a holiday, but this is getting quite sinister when what you're doing is you're moving people off their land into cities away from an ability to support themselves so that the wealthier people of the planet can come in and enjoy the natural beauty. I mean, I think this is quite sinister myself. And you found that with most of the countries, the people that you spoke to, it's happening? I suppose I can't say in every country that that's happening, but it was obvious that what's happening are corporations are coming in. And it was, you know, in Vietnam, the Vietnamese presentation was about the growing of GM corn, which then displaces everybody and the same story is that the use of pesticides people get ill you've got um, corporations taking the the best farmland and that is a a common story all over the place did you get to move around the philippines at all to meet any of the the farmers no we didn't do that it was really very focused in there so everyone had come in and what you got was two full days of presentation so you're just hearing the stories about what's going on and then we would socialize with one another 
in the breaks, we also went to the Department of Agriculture and there was a, a farmer and conference demonstration outside basically saying we do not want golden rice and that was really amazing because what you get was the local farmers saying we want land reform, we want support for our farming, we want an end to this, you know, the ownership of our rice, we want an end to pesticide-driven farming, we want health and um, sustainability and, you know, we want to be heard, basically. What's going to happen to their rice supplies that they have now if they get this golden rice in? Well, one of the concerns is that what it will do, it will contaminate. So it's been presented as, we are going to give this rice to the poorest farmers. But there's always a catch. You know, one is that the poorest farmers actually don't want it. They want their own rice. But two is that if it starts outcrossing with all the local rices, then does then that rice become patentable because it's now outcrossed? And also it said something like the the rice is free to farmers who don't earn more than a certain income. Okay, so when they do start earning more than a certain income or when commercial farmers are contaminated with this, what happens then? And the irony about all of this is that Dr. Debaldev is this scientist and farmer from India and uh, he was at the conference and he gave a fantastic presentation and what he was saying was that he'd gone through and tested the rice seeds in their seed bank and he'd found 515 types of rice that had high beta carotene in the brand. So as long as you ate it as brown rice, then you would get this vitamin A. So it's like you don't even need this. And you think what this is going to do to those traditional brands of rice if they bring in and saturate the market with so-called golden rice well exactly it will contaminate and, and what, yeah, what they'll lose those they will lose yes it will be contaminated and it will be patented and you can see that this is building on the back of the green revolution which in the west is portrayed as oh everyone got fed and it was a massive increase in rice yeah it was a massive increase in rice yield but you got rid of the rice straw that you fed to the animals it also meant that you had to use pesticides and fertilizers and it required more water so it sent a lot of people bankrupt it poisoned a lot of the ecosystems and people are absolutely furious that they were duped out of this or forced out of growing their local rice so what is happening uh, you know the common story across this conference is what is happening is people are trying to rebuild seed banks and are trying to re-establish traditional ways of farming traditional in the way of sustainable so you can keep staying in the same patch of earth and, and keep farming it year after year and people are very clear that they know what happened with the green revolution which is basically their indigenous seeds that were really well adapted were taken away from them and they had these substandard seeds that they might yield more than their old seeds but it doesn't mean they're not more nutritious and it means that they, they, they pushed out a whole lot of other crops that, that were needed for their food. So there's a fight back? There's definitely a fight back and it was just amazing because you also had the National Anti-Poverty Commission and farm unions and all these really dynamic people who were networked on the ground and who were really clear that change is needed because their people are suffering poverty and what is presented as a solution, they've already seen that and they know that it fails and they do not want it anymore.
And that was the other interesting thing that the, um, the National Anti-Poverty Commission organised a, a public dialogue with Golden Rice and we were kind of spectators to that. So they had people from four departments, government agencies, and they were in conversation with farmers, women, consumers, academics, scientists and international organisations. So, for example, there was a woman there from the Indian groups of organic farmers basically saying, we do not want this. You know, we've consulted our members and these are these, you know, like, I don't know, several hundred thousand or more farmers not wanting this this golden rice. So it was actually quite good because that was interesting as well because what we were told is that there hasn't really been much public discussion about this GM rice. And so by setting up this meeting between all these groups and government was actually good because it's quite amazing that you're having the staple food genetically modified without public discussion. And this was kind of like apparently one of the first times that you got people together. And there was a lot of passion in the room because this is people's livelihoods. It's their culture and it's their health and it's their future. Is it likely that conferences like this could take place in other parts of the world where people have been having this rice forced on them? Yeah, definitely. So one of the aims of this conference was basically to reach out and network and make links. And I think it was really successful at that. And what it really brought home for me is that everywhere is facing the same problems. It manifests differently in each country. But in Australia, we've getting farmers forced off the land. In Australia, we are getting one in five children who are sometimes missing meals. I mean, we are a wealthy country and yet we allow people to be impoverished like this. I mean, and this is a choice. I think we have to acknowledge this is our choice that we choose to do it. I'm not saying you and I directly decide to do it, but the policies that are set by our governments are allowing this to happen and to go unchecked and to blame it as some kind of personal failing of people's individuals rather than the system is not allowing people to provide for themselves and to have a life of dignity and that was really what was very clear so I think it was fantastic to meet people from all over the place it was really interesting to meet people from China and Taiwan and and see that everywhere what's happening is people want to be in control of their food again because that means being in control of your land, your food, being able to make decisions and um, to be able to build a community and a culture. And the barriers to this are the excessive powers given to corporations to come in and do what they want effectively with no checks or balances and with governments frequently actively supporting them and regulators actively supporting them. So I I just think there is this disconnect with if we are seriously democracies, then we should start actually listening to people and have a variety of conversations, not just having this one-sided corporations are wonderful, they can do whatever they want, GM is, you know, not pushing that idea we actually need to have some discussions and some some real evidence because, I mean, this is what gets me. I mean, I've been looking at GM crops for 20 years now and all the things when we started, when I started, all the things that we, oh, they might end up resulting in more pesticide use and they might end up causing pests to evolve resistance and they might end up control over the seed. All of these things have happened. You know, we've increased pesticide use 
We've got these super pests, super weeds. Farmers are furious about the lack of choice of the seed that they have. And there's also evidence of people getting sick from this because like three years ago, we brought Dr. Michelle Perot from California. She's a pediatrician who's worked for 30 plus years and she's saying she's seen really sick kids in her practice and things that weren't even in the textbooks when she started. So you're dealing with illnesses. And she said, you start off by cleaning up the gut. Once you clean up their diet and you clean up the gut, then you can start looking at if there's anything underlying that. Sometimes the problems will go away, but otherwise you, can, you can't even start until you clear up the food. So I'm thinking, how many people do you know that have digestive issues? How many people do you know that have kids with all sorts of problems? And just to go along and say, oh, it's what it's like now is no good. We need to look at what's changed. And one of the things that's massively changed is the corporate takeover of our food system, GM crops and pesticides and all sorts of weird additives and processes in our food. In the countries that you have talked about, mainly poorer countries, they're quite aware of all those things. Well, you can see that there's different levels of awareness in different countries. I think the Philippines are actually very politically aware and very well networked. I think India has a huge amount of knowledge well, and network well, as The well. Green Revolution. <laughs> yes. So what you tend to do, see is that countries that have experienced this are not swayed at all by the rhetoric. But I think who is swayed are the people who aren't the peasant farmers the people who are in the government, the people who are at one remove, who it becomes a story and they either believe the peasants, which is kind of a bit, I suppose, can be seen as a bit infradig or, you know, a bit daggy, or you can listen to these slick corporations who are waving white-coated scientists around at you. And money. And, of course, the money. Yes, exactly. But you can see that it's actually really important that people meet up and hear each other's stories because I think people were quite surprised that we had a problem with hunger and poverty in Australia also that in Asia there's you know disquiet about Australian milk and meat exports coming in and undercutting their farmers and then I was thinking well in Australia then you have produce imports undercutting our farmers so what you're really seeing is farmers being told to focus on exports because really who wins in exports are big corporations, you know. But their farmers are are not being encouraged to supply their own domestic market or supply a varied market. They're being encouraged to supply commodity crops, which is, you know, things that you can transport, but other things that go into a diversified diet for a local area is not what people are are being encouraged to grow. Just focus for a couple of minutes on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're sort of told these these two people are going to save the world, but there's another side to that story, isn't there? Yes, there is another side to that story. And you can Google, and I think it's Global Justice have done a a report on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and there's also Agra Watch, A-G-R-A Watch that look into them. But what they're saying is that there's this thing called philanthrocapitalism. So it's philanthropy 
which is actually capitalism. So there, it's said that the foundation, the Gates Foundation, owns shares in a lot of companies and the income that it gets from those shares is actually greater than what it disperses in its various grants. But the money that it disperses is enormous. And what it is pushing is a very technological solution to everything. So because the money that they're putting into health and agriculture is so enormous, it basically swamps everyone else's ideas and you all get shoved into one way or the other. So some of their projects might be okay. I don't know. I haven't looked at all of them. But what has happened is that there's no democratic discussion of what do we actually need to do and he's pushing or the foundation is pushing GM crops in Africa in Asia and it is extremely clear that people and farmers on the ground are just like you and me they want to know their food is safe and they want it grown locally by farmers with decent living conditions neither of which condition is met by GM crops so people all over the world are really resistant to it and I think it's a massive imposition and uh, extremely rude of Bill Gates to be behaving like this. And then, of course, you've got the, the major, the ginormous pesticide companies yeah. behind this. Yeah, absolutely. It gets smaller and smaller and the yeah. numbers and huge multinational now. Yeah, huge multinational. So in the 1970s, there were something like 7,000 commercial seed companies worldwide up until recently that had conglomerated into six I mean, six companies worldwide selling. And that's getting smaller. <laughs> now smaller. it's turning into four. And then you think, well, that's going to consolidate as well, because in capitalism, you either have to grow your market, which is more people, or you have to take over somebody else's market. And I think it, we need to be extremely, extremely clear that what is happening is GM crops have saturated North America in the commodity crops. Europe doesn't want them. Australia's kept most of them out. So the target for them is Africa and Asia. So this is not about saving Africa and Asia. This is about making money for the corporations who want to control agriculture in those places because up until now, farmers have been in control of their seed more or less or, you know, not exclusively because obviously you had the green revolution which failed in Africa because they were too smart and held on to things but you know there's an awful lot of myths out there about who's feeding who and really it's the third world poor farmers feeding the big corporations what was the agenda at the end of the conference after five days what was the result well there's a statement that's still being finally fine-tuned but there's a conference declaration and it's stated if i can read it out if you want so this is just one section of it the past green revolution and current gmo commercialization peddled by the international rice research institute monsanto bayer syngenta and other giant agrochemical corporations in the last three decades has not solved but exacerbated the bitter state of rural poverty hunger and malnutrition in asia it has robbed our farmers of sovereignty over our seeds poisoned our ecosystems, grabbed our land, chained our farmers to debt and deaths, eroded our genetic diversity and trampled the sanctity of life. Which I think basically sums up. This isn't just an esoteric discussion. This is people's lives, their homes. Are they going to be poisoned? Are they going to be pushed off what little that they have? To be presenting this as some kind of Western saviour is just 
the complete reverse of the truth. And so I do think the, the positive thing out of this is that going and meeting people and listening and you're thinking, yeah, if there is a future, it is a future of us as people discussing with people all over Asia because we all have the same needs for good food, clean water, access to resources, access to community. And we, we can sort it out. We just have to talk to each other and not be frightened and scared into believing certain things and, and to really pick apart the myths. And that's the way forward. Yeah, definitely like solidarity basically and listening and talking to one another and just being considerate i think we need an awful lot more talking and i also think we need to really challenge the governments and the corporations you know they haven't delivered if this system was working there wouldn't be any poverty anywhere if the promises were true it we would all be living in nirvana and to say oh yeah the system's great but you're all wrong and that's why you're poor i think is a complete cop out just finally Fran I'm just wondering about the the feeling at the conference of a a woman or maybe more than one woman from the first world coming to a conference with people from the developing world the south how did you fit in well I was a bit taller than everyone so and uh, a lot whiter so I did feel kind of like oh gosh my sort of um I didn't mean in that sense. <laughs> well, it, it, it is true, though, because there's many layered things going on. And um, everyone was extremely kind and hospitable. And I did think, wow, everyone speaks English incredibly well and has a huge grasp. And I don't know this. But there is historical imbalances that go back. And I could also see that there are some countries that had great representations from women there, which was really encouraging. And the women there were fantastic because they're obviously doing great work in their communities. There was one country there that didn't have any women representatives. And I did think it showed that there was a bit of a, a gap. And it's quite clear that diversity is really important and all sorts of diversity because the more different people that we can hear from the clearer the picture that we get and the bigger the understanding that we get of what's going on and therefore the bigger the solutions and the better the solutions and the more likely those solutions are going to last because everyone's been consulted and I think really that's what a democracy is and if we're going to aspire to that then that's what we need we need diversity we need to listen we need to respect each other and we need to go forward thinking about what is the most joyous future we can imagine? What is the most just future? What is the most beautiful future? What is the most enjoyable, fair and <laughs> delightful place for us all? We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
And before my cough there, that was Fran Murrell from Madge looking up. That's all for me today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Bye for now.